How many of you had a teacher tell you there's no such thing as a stupid question? When I was a teacher, I would often tell my students this, and I largely believed it. Sometimes you wonder if teachers really believe that. I largely believed it, except when my students would ask a question about something I just told them. So it goes something like this, class, your assignment is due in two days. And like five seconds later, Mr. Hemmelman, when's our assignment due? Tomorrow. <laughs> stupid questions, get stupid answers, something like that. But in, in, in honesty, the idea that there are no stupid questions may be true, but here is also the truth. Some questions are better than others. Some questions just sort of probe the surface of things. They're, they're just merely a question for information. Just tell me some facts, tell me some information. But some questions probe deeper. They cause us to reflect and cause us to ponder and consider the meaning of things. Such questions want to dig deeper, dig underneath the surface. They, they want to really get at what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. Such questions have a way of slowing us down or stopping us in our tracks. The poet David White in his, in his poem, Sometimes, which is actually in your, in your liturgy, beautifully writes about these kinds of questions. And I want to read this poem. And, and here, is what, here, here is how David White gets at these deeper kinds of questions. Sometimes, if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of leaves without a sound. You come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests, conceived out of nowhere but in this place, beginning to lead everywhere. Requests to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life, questions that have patiently waited for you, questions that have no right to go away. These kinds of questions, questions that have been waiting for you, questions that can make or unmake your life, questions that have no right to go away, these are the real questions. These are the good questions. This is the kind of question that Psalm 15 asks us in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Scholars and, and biblical historians believe that, the, that King David wrote this psalm as he watched the Ark of the Covenant come back into Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with Old Testament history and a little bit of the history of Israel, you know that the Ark of the Covenant was Israel's most important and precious artifact. And if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you also know that it'll take out Nazis. <laughs> it, was, it was an important piece of their culture and their worship. But, but it was more than just this really fancy box with golden angels on the top of it that, that held mementos of their past. See, why David rejoiced when the Ark of the Covenant came back to Jerusalem? Because the Ark represented the presence of God. It represented and it pointed to God is with his people. And so the Ark for David 
pointed to this truth that God's with us, God's for us. And the ark itself, because it represented the presence of God, was holy. It was not to be touched. When, when Israel would carry it, they had to carry it on posts and cover it with a veil because if they touched it, they would die. When they would set it up in the tabernacle, which was basically like a mobile temple going through the wilderness, they would put it in the furthest room in the tabernacle. And the same thing when they established the temple in Jerusalem. It, it reminded them God's presence is holy and I can't just approach God's presence because I am a sinner I'm of this earth, I'm common, and God is wholly other. He's righteous, he's good. His very beauty would drop me dead in my tracks. And so as David sees the ark coming into Jerusalem and he ponders, hey, the ark is this holy, magnificent relic of our, of our past, and it points to the holiness and the greatness and the awesomeness and goodness and righteousness of God. David begins to ponder, if this is who God is, and if he says that he dwells with us, who could ever, ever, ever be near God? Who could sojourn in God's tent? This is a way of saying, who could come to God's house? Like who could knock on God's door and God would open his door and say, hey, come on in and let me, let me sit down at my table, sit on my couch. Let me give you a meal. Who is God extending hospitality to who could ever be that close to this awesome and holy and righteous God? And then when David says, who can dwell on his holy hill? In scripture, when God would meet with people, it was often on a hill or on a mount. And so in, in, in Genesis 1, Eden, if you, if you sort of look at the description of Eden, and if you look at it closely, it's actually describing an elevated place. The book of Ezekiel calls Eden a mount, when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, he, his presence came down and he set the mountain on fire to meet with Moses. And then Mount Zion, the hill in Jerusalem, God's holy city, where the tabernacle was set and the ark was set. David is like, who can go up on a mountain that God would come down and meet with them? Who is this person? Who could possibly do this? This is the question that David presents us. This is the question that God's word holds out for us. This is the question that perhaps has patiently waited for you. This is a question that definitely unmakes or makes a life. This is a question that deserves not to go away. And it's a question that Psalm 15 thankfully answers for us. And so here's what I would like to do briefly this morning for us. I want to look at the answer Psalm 15 gives us from three different angles. The first is the beauty in the answer. The second is the despair of this answer. And third, the hope in the answer. So the beauty in the answer, the despair of the answer, and the hope that is in this answer. So in verses two through five, David begins listing out the qualities of the kind of person that can dwell with the Lord. And his description if we're honest, is nothing short of beautiful. It's nothing short of something tremendous. In verse two, he writes, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. What kind of person can dwell with the Lord? Well, he who is blameless. To be blameless is to be a person of complete integrity. It means that you don't fake being good, you actually are good. 
and you're consistently good, meaning you are equally as good no matter where you go. It's not like, hey, when you're at work, you're good, but when you're at home, you're a devil, or, or vice versa. When you're at home, you're great, but at work, you're a terror. It's not like if you are in front of some people and you put on this great show of righteousness and goodness, but in front of other people, you're nothing but a sinful, deranged lunatic. What David is saying here, the blameless one, integrity. They always do what is right. No matter the situation, no matter how challenging, no matter how difficult, no matter the circumstances, no matter who they're around, always do what is right. And you know why? Because they speak truth in their heart. It's not just what they say that is true, it's that their heart is actually true. What comes out of their heart is true and it is good. Their heart has been perfectly and completely shaped in truth. Think about such a person. Does not our world cry out for people like this that are good in all circumstances, that are honest in all circumstances, they don't pretend and posture, they're not hypocritical, but they're genuinely good people. Genuinely loving, genuinely caring, genuinely self-sacrificial. We're talking about people that this world is screaming for. What a beautiful picture. How many of us long to be that kind of person? Long to be around those kinds of people? This is the type of person who can dwell with the Lord. In verse 3, David continues his description the person who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. The person who can dwell with God speaks well of others and does good to others. He doesn't slander, meaning he's not cutting others down. He's not speaking ill of others. He doesn't get on social media and rant and tear other people down. He doesn't get caught up in neighborhood or work or church gossip. Does no evil to his neighbor. This means he doesn't harm his neighbor, but it also means that he isn't neglectful and passive and indifferent. He actually does good to his neighbor, loves his neighbor, is kind to his neighbor. He doesn't take up a reproach, meaning he doesn't cut others down, but nor does he allow other people to cut people down in front of him. He is such a loyal friend that if you start slandering, if you start cutting one of his friends down or somebody that he knows, he'll stop you and say, nope, not going to allow you to slander, not going to allow you to reproach somebody. They're, they're so good, they're so blameless, so full of integrity, they won't let sin slide. They're loyal. They love their friends. This is the kind of person that can dwell near the Lord. Is there not a beauty in such goodness and loyalty to others? Don't you long to be around and have friends like this? Don't you long to be this kind of person? In verse four, David says, the person who can dwell with the Lord is the person in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. The person who dwells with the Lord loves righteousness. They love goodness. They hate wickedness and evil. When they see wickedness, when they see evil, they're not indifferent. They don't go, oh, well, so what? They don't laugh at evil. They don't think it's funny. No, they despise it. When they see wicked and evil people doing wicked and evil things, when they see unjust people doing unjust things, they feel anger towards it. They want it to stop. They want to do what they can to stop it. The people who dwell near the Lord are those like the Lord who hate evil. 
Not only do they hate evil, they honor those who honor the Lord. They love righteousness. They celebrate goodness. They celebrate righteousness. When they see people being faithful to God, they celebrate. They go, that's a good thing. We want more of that. They see people being faithful to God and they encourage them and say, hey, I want to honor you and respect you because you're doing the right thing. So it's not just that they hate evil, but there's an honor, there's a love, there's a cherishing, there's a validating of what is good, celebrating what is good. And then David rounds out his description in verses four and five. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. The one who dwells near the Lord is he who swears to his own hurt. This means that a person will keep their word. They will keep their commitment no matter what. No matter the cost to them, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the injury, they never say, oh, wow, when I, when I promised that to you, I had no idea how much that was going to cost me, and so sorry, I can't do it. No, they'll say, even though it cost me this, I gave my word, I gave my commitment, I'm going to follow through. And then the person who does not put out his money at interest, what this verse is talking about are those who would engage in what we would call predatory loans, like, I'm going to charge you such high interest that you're always in my debt and you're always sort of my slave and I can control you and, and I can use you. So those who don't use their money to take advantage of other people, those who don't use their pocketbook to manipulate and control, those who don't rip others off so that they can make a buck, those who are honest with their money is what this verse is saying. And those who are also so honest that you can't bribe them, can't manipulate them, you can't sway them with the promise of a gift. Boy, how would our world be different if those were our business leaders and our government's officials? Those who don't rip us off and those who don't take bribes. Does not our world cry out for such leaders? Does our world not cry out for such economics? How beautiful a place would this world be is if that is how business was run and those who led us in government, if that's the character integrity that they had. It's a beautiful picture. David is painting the picture of integrity. He's laying out this picture of goodness and honesty and love and loyalty and commitment hating what is evil, but celebrating what is good, using our resources and our time and our energy to love and bless and serve others. And as verse five says, he who does these things shall never be moved. If you live this way, you will be sure and established, though all the world may conspire against you. Here's the promise. God will hold you. He will establish you. He will not let your foot be shaken. Friends, the one who dwells near the Lord is one that we should all desire to be. We should all resonate with this picture of goodness and integrity and love and loyalty. I wonder, as you hear this description, can you say, wow, I would like to be that person. I want to be that kind of person. But also notice what is missing from the description. What does David leave out? Religious ritual. No mention of religious ritual here. Does it mean that David didn't care about religious ritual? Was it not important? Absolutely not. In David's day, it was extremely important. 
But what David is holding out here, he's showing that religious ritual means jack squat. If your heart is not full of righteousness, it doesn't matter the religious ritual you go through. It doesn't matter the prayers you pray, how much you give, whatever other religious activity you do. If your heart is not full of righteousness, it matters nothing. David is calling people to consider the integrity and the holiness and the righteousness that's in their heart. God is near those not who go through religious motion. He is near those who are like him, good and righteous and just and true. What ultimately matters is the condition of our hearts. And so this is the beauty of the answer. If David holds out this beautiful picture for us, and in some ways we're drawn to this and say, yes, I would like to be this kind of person and I would like to live in a world and be around people such as this. If we're honest, the answer should also lead us to despair. There should be a sense of despair as we consider the picture of a person like this. Why? Because raise your hand if Psalm 15 describes you. If you have lived Psalm 15 perfectly, please let us know. Look, how many of us, if we are honest, how many of us have walked in complete integrity? How many of us have always done what is right? How many of us have hearts that are completely formed by the truth? There's no deceit in us. We never posture. Uh, we're never pretending. We're never performing for others. How many of us have never torn someone down or spoken evil or got caught up in gossip? How many of us have never been on social media and slandered and, and railed and ripped other people? How many of us have always been a loyal friend? How many of us have always defended our friends and shut down gossip and wouldn't let people reproach others? How many of us have always been honest with our money? How many of us have always kept our word? How many of us have been righteously angry at evil and always honored what is good? If we go through the list over and over and over, we're going to see we don't measure up. If we're honest, we know we have not been this kind of person. We know the evil that is in our hearts. We know the ways that we have been faking it. We know the ways we have been lying and we have not walked in integrity. We know the ways that we have gossiped and slandered. We know the ways that we have not loved our neighbor. We've neglected or been indifferent. We know the ways we haven't been honest with our money. We know the ways that we have broken our word and gone back on promises. We know we're broken when we're honest, when we have those honest moments, no matter how much we want to cover it up, no matter how much we want to deny it, no matter how much we want to say, well, look at all the good that I do. If we are honest, Psalm 15 leaves us in despair because it's like, who can do this? Not me. Who can dwell near the Lord? Who can sojourn in his tent? Who can dwell on his hill? Not me. This is the honest truth of Psalm 15. It's a beautiful picture. It's a wonderful picture. But it's something we all fall short of. This is a question that when we're confronted should break us. As we saw last week in Psalm 14, he said there are none that are good. There, there are none who seek after God. There are none who love like they should. We're corrupt. We're rebellious. We're deceitful. We're selfish. We're unjust. So Psalm 15 
brings us to the end of ourself. It should bring us to this place of despair. It should bring us and cause us to go, well, God, if I can't dwell, what hope do I have? And this is where Psalm 15 flips the script for us and holds out hope. This is the beauty of Psalm 15. In our despair, yes, we should despair, but that despair should never leave us hopeless. Psalm 15 should, Psalm 15 should bring us to the end of ourselves it should cause us to despair our sin and our self-righteousness and our performance and our deceit and cause us to say, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm gonna turn from my sin. I'm gonna turn from my selfishness. I'm gonna turn from living a life that wasn't full of integrity, living a life of deceit, living a life of indifference to evil, living a life of gossip and slander, living a life of not using my money honestly, whatever it may be, I'm gonna turn from that. And I'm gonna turn to God I'm going to turn to God for rescue. Because here is the good news of the gospel for us this morning. The good news that we have been singing about, the good news that we profess this morning, is that while none of us are worthy to dwell with God, God didn't just write us off. We all deserved to be cast out in judgment. But that's not where God left us. Because God is good and he is loving rather than just casting us out into judgment and leaving us there, here's what God does in love. He sends Jesus. He sends God the Son. When we couldn't ascend to the hill and meet with God, Jesus steps from the heavenly hill and comes down to us. God the Son dwells with us. God in the flesh, his presence with us. And what does Jesus do when he's here? He perfectly keeps Psalm 15. Jesus was blameless, perfect in his integrity. Jesus always did what was right. He always loved perfectly. Jesus' heart was full of truth. He only spoke what is true. He only spoke what was good. He only thought what was good. He only felt what was good. Oh, do you know Jesus never slandered, never gossiped? Do you know Jesus didn't do evil to neighbor, but he loved his neighbor. He loved you and me. Loved us to the point of even laying down his life. Do you know that Jesus never ripped anybody off? He was never dishonest with money. He was very honest with money. Do you know that Jesus was loyal to his friends? Jesus is the most faithful friend you could ever have. Here's what's also beautiful. Get this. Jesus kept his word even when it cost him his life. Jesus committed to being our sacrifice. He committed to the Father, yes, I will go and I will die in their place. I will save them. I will take your judgment and your wrath on myself. And even when he knew he was going to be tortured, even when he knew he was going to suffer, even when he knew he was going to face the wrath of his Father, he kept his word. And in keeping his word, he saves sinners like you and me. Do you know Jesus, he was offered all the kingdoms of the world by Satan. Hey, if you bow down before me, I'll give you all of these kingdoms. I'll give you everything here that I own. The people, that they wanted to set Jesus up as the king. They wanted to detract him from his mission and bribe him. Hey, you be our king. And you know what? Jesus said, no, I have a mission. I can't be bribed. I can't be bought. This is how Jesus lived. He perfectly kept Psalm 15 for you and for me. And here is the good news. 
Jesus dies for our sin. He takes the punishment that you and I deserve on himself. But in rising from the dead, just like verse five, he keeps Psalm 15, he cannot be moved. What Jesus has accomplished cannot be undone. Rising from the grave in victory, showing that all evil opposed him, that evil gave its best shot and killed him. Rising in victory, he said, you don't win. You lose. My kingdom is established forever. And so friends, what this means for us is if you put your faith in Christ, if you turn from your sin, if you turn from your self-righteousness, if you turn from your trying to perform to earn God's favor, here's what you get as a free gift of grace, the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that Jesus earned, the righteousness that he has, he gives to you as a gift. And so now you stand before God, get this, as if you never sinned. Because of the righteousness of Christ, God sees you as he sees Christ. And it means that God sees you as if you have perfectly kept Psalm 15. And what this means, praise God, you can dwell with him. You can dwell with God through Jesus Christ. You can be near to God. He will open his door, welcome you in, sit on my couch, eat from my fridge, sit at my table. You are my friend. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. Through Jesus, we can dwell with this awesome, holy, righteous, good, powerful God. We don't stand before him and we're not struck dead because of his holiness. No, he welcomes us near as a father because of Christ, because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus came for us. And what Jesus does is he comes down to us so he can bring us up to the father This is the hope of Psalm 15. The hope of Psalm 15 is you can be through Christ one who dwells with God. You can be one who knows God's love and his grace. You can be one who is transformed by his love and his mercy. You can know joy and you can know peace. You can know faithfulness and goodness and kindness. And here's what else. And I'm speaking specifically to those of you who are Christians. The gospel is not just a message of our salvation. It's also a call. It's a call to follow Christ. And so what this means is if you are in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is making you like Psalm 15. He is making you in his image. And so he is making you a person who walks as Psalm 15. Someone who walks in this kind of integrity and this kind of righteousness and this kind of goodness He calls you into this life to be this person and he gives you his spirit and he says, I'm gonna transform you. And so look, yes, until the day we die or Jesus returns, it's going to be a struggle. We're gonna sin, it's gonna be imperfect. But the call of God is still on your life to walk in the way Jesus walked, to walk in the power that he has given you. And friends, I know sometimes this is messy and this is hard And maybe you come this morning and you're thinking, man, I know I believe in Jesus, but I feel the furthest from Psalm 15 as I felt in a long time. Here's the hope for you. Jesus has paid for all that sin and he's given you the spirit. And as the Bible says, he who began a good work in you will complete it. And so your hope is you will be like Psalm 15. God finishes what he starts. Your ultimate destiny, no matter how messy it may seem right now, is to be this person. 
But in this life, as we walk and follow Christ, we're called to continue to repent of our sin, turn from our sin, and walk in the ways of Christ. And so if you call yourself a Christian, and Psalm 15 has no bearing in your heart, if it doesn't resonate with you, if you don't long for it, if it, if it seems like the furthest thing from your interest, then it challenges you. Do you really know Christ? Have you really experienced his grace? Is his spirit really at work in your heart? I'm not trying to sow doubt in the hearts of those that believe, but I am challenging because I know, especially in this context, in this city, in this area, a lot of people like to say, I'm a Christian, but there's no life in them. Friend, that does not have to be you. You can know Christ. You can be transformed. And so here's what Psalm 15 invites you, no matter where you are. It invites you to put your faith in the righteous one, in Christ, the one who has perfectly kept Psalm 15 for you, that you may have his righteousness, that you may dwell near God and know him as a loving father, and that you may be transformed into the image of Christ and then sent into this world to tell people about a loving God who saves sinners. That is the hope of Psalm 15, church.